chapter 14. <laughs> Chuckles. Guess because my name's John. John 14. We're just going to read verses 1 through 6. Jesus says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Let's pray. Father, we, we do come, and we come in the name of Christ, acknowledging that it is only in Jesus that we can have life, and that we can enter into the presence of the Father with confidence because of the work that's been accomplished. Lord, we need you now to understand your word. These words that are familiar, Lord, may we not be trying to uncover something new, but just reaffirming what is clearly true in what you said, and that our faith would be strengthened, that our hope would be strengthened, that our joy would be made full as we have our eyes fixed on Jesus. And so we just look to you during this time, and we pray that you would teach us. We pray us in Christ's name. Amen. So I want to first just take a minute to thank everybody for your prayers and uh, thoughts as the new baby arrived. Lena, she's doing great. She cries a lot in the middle of the night, but other than that, she's doing really well. So we're very blessed. So thank you for for praying for us and thinking of us. With four little girls, uh, there's never a dull moment. I don't really know how else to describe it besides there's just never a dull moment. There's always something going on. Uh, and so it's, it's great. We're very blessed. Charlie's in Florida for the weekend, probably on the beach. Um, no, probably not, actually. Uh, but he's speaking at a church there for, for a little conference they had. So he asked me to preach. I wasn't really sure, never really sure what to preach on. Uh, but just after praying about it, I really felt like this is where the Lord landed me. Uh, and so a familiar passage. And so we'll just work through it. But this past summer, we got to watch the Olympics. And watching the Olympics is always a fun and exciting thing. Usually, though, we don't have television at my house. And so we usually don't watch very much of the Olympics. So we actually got to this summer. I'm not really sure how that worked. Uh, but we were able to. And it's... It's always fascinating to see the things that these athletes have trained their bodies to be able to do. I'm just thinking, like, not in my wildest dreams would I even want to do that, let alone train for it. Uh, and, and yet, the, the, things that, the feats that they're able to accomplish are incredible. And, and you know that these men and women have just put so much time, their lives, basically, into training to be able to go to the Olympics and to try to get one of these medals. Uh, and even this summer, we had, a, we had a girl who, she was, I think, 11 years old, 
And in the middle of the week, her mom had to come and pick her up and take her to her meeting because they were going to meet with her gymnastics teachers and tell them that she was quitting gymnastics because she was getting ready for the Olympics. But she was only 11. So she still had a number of years before she could even qualify. But she was already training. And her parents decided we want our daughter to have a life. And so they were going to cancel that. But from, from a young age, most of the time, these athletes are training for something that's far in the future. And, and this is, they, they're devoting their lives to this. They're investing everything into this one event. And as fun as it was for me to watch the Olympics this summer, it was actually kind of heart-wrenching. Because out of all those athletes, there's only three that actually get a medal for each event. Uh, and only one of them actually gets the gold, and that's really what they all want. They want the gold medal. The bronze and the silver, they're not nearly as excited about. And, and it was heart-wrenching to watch them because you see all these athletes that have devoted their lives to this event, and when they don't make it, you see the despair on their faces. They're just thinking, all of that work, the hours of training, the sacrifices that they made, the sacrifice of friends and family, uh, all that they've done, and now they're going to go home and they don't have, in their minds, anything to show for it. Uh, and, and seeing that discouragement that they face when their world is just turned upside down. It was really sad. Uh, and, you know, all of us are always there's always a temptation to be discouraged in one way or another. It may not be a major world-turning event that's happening in our lives, but between relationships and friendships, uh, whether it's things at, at work or in school or wherever it is, there's, there's different areas that the, the enemy wants us to be discouraged in. And he does whatever he can to keep us from knowing the joy of the Lord and to bring us into a place of being discouraged and despair. And the disciples here in John 14, that, that atmosphere of being extremely discouraged and disappointed and wondering, what do I do now? That's kind of the sense of the room when we pick up in verse 1. Because Jesus is just talking, Judas has already left. Jesus had told them earlier that one of them was going to betray him. And every one of them said, surely it's not I, not I. And in our minds, it's really clear that he pointed out that it was Judas, but the disciples still aren't sure that it's going to be Judas. And so they have questions. Like, Jesus, we're not going to betray you. There's no way. We all love you. But Jesus still said, what if he's going to betray me? And not only that, but he's, he's washed their feet. And that was pretty uncomfortable for them. Uh, they weren't too crazy about that idea. And Peter even tried to keep him from washing his feet. And then he goes on and he tells him in chapter 13, in verse 33, he says, Little children, I'm with you a little while longer. You'll seek me, and as I said to the Jews, now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And thinking of the disciples hearing this, remember, these men, like the Olympic athlete, they've made lots of sacrifices to be with Jesus. Over the last year and a half to three years that they've been walking with him full time, uh, they've made sacrifices with their families, those that have families. They've made sacrifices economically. They're not working. They're all poor. They don't have anything to show for their time with Jesus. And things were looking really good for them a week earlier before this conversation on Sunday when they had the triumphal entry. 
they see Jesus coming in and he's celebrated, he's received by crowds. And the disciples have to be thinking, this is why, this is one of the main reasons we follow Jesus, because we know Jesus is a savior. He's a king, he's worthy of praise. And Jesus is coming to Jerusalem and people are finally going to realize that he's a savior of the world. The disciples are probably encouraged. They're excited. But then, in the midst of all that, here in in chapter 13, he tells them, actually, I'm about to leave. All the commitment that you guys have made towards me, all the sacrifices you've made, just so you know, I'm not going to become a king in Jerusalem at this time. Instead, I'm going to leave. And they hear that, and the disciples are sitting around the table, and they're thinking... What now? How is this happening? This is not what we expected. When he called us from from fishing and told us to leave everything and follow him, we never expected that it would be three years of ministry only to hear him say, all right, I'm leaving. We thought Jesus would be there to establish his kingdom and to, to give us a seat on his right hand and his left hand because we've given up everything to follow him. And things are not going the way they expected. I think they're really discouraged. And then beyond all that, the, the icing on the cake is right before 14 verse 1, Jesus has just told Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, Jesus, everybody else might leave you, but I'm going to go with you no matter what. I will die for you. And Jesus says, no, you're going to deny me. And picturing Peter's, in Peter's mind, you know, he's such a passionate man, and he's thinking, there, there's no way. What in the world do I do with this? And the disciple is thinking, if Peter's going to deny Jesus, what does that mean for us? Because Peter is so gung-ho, he's so passionate. What does that mean for the rest of us? And so, so for the disciples, this is not a happy conversation for them. Judas has just left, and Jesus told them he's about to leave, and their hearts are extremely troubled. Like the Olympian who failed to get the medal, they're looking around, they're saying, what does this mean? Where do we go from here? And so, Jesus sees their, their concern and their doubts, and he addresses it. In 14 verse 1, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. And... You know, I have four, four girls, and with that comes lots of troubled hearts uh, all the time. And, and so it's, you know, three of them are old enough to be walking and talking, and they're realizing more and more every day that they have opinions, and their opinions grow stronger as they get older. Like, it used to be that we could tell them to eat anything. We would feed them cold oatmeal, and they loved it. Uh, but now they realize, hey, there's something better than cold oatmeal. It's called warm oatmeal, and it's great. Uh, and so they're, they're developing. Their opinions are, are developing. And, and so one time recently, I was down in our kitchen, and one of the girls comes downstairs, and she's crying. And so me being the, the compassionate, loving father I am, I kneel down, and I say, what's wrong? And I put my arm around her. She's sobbing and sobbing, and she says, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, this is my life. Uh, unexplainable tears for the rest of my life. It's going to be great. Um, but, 
But when they get upset, when they get upset, they come to me and they're crying about something. It's very easy for me to, to think in my mind, maybe because I'm both because I'm older and because I'm a guy, I'm just insensitive. But in my mind, I think this is this is petty. Like you should not be worried about this. There's bigger things that are going to happen in your life that you can be sad about. This is not one of them. So you need to get over it. That's what happens in my mind. I don't tell them that. Okay. Um, but when we're, when we're functioning from the flesh, that's always our approach to people's problems. This is not a big deal. You think you have a problem? You should see what's going on in my life. And that's how we, how we perceive other people's situations. And we hear people complain about something, and we think, that's not a big deal. You just need to get over it. And Jesus, he hears his disciples. He, he knows their hearts. He knows their troubled hearts. And he comes alongside of them, and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. He doesn't say, don't let your hearts be troubled, because you just need to get over it. This is a petty thing. That's not what Jesus does. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. And then he leads them into how to overcome a troubled heart. This is the way to not have a troubled heart. And because God is always very complex in how to do things, he makes it really complex. Do you know what Jesus says? Believe in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. That's Jesus' solution to a troubled heart. And it's, it's interesting to note that Jesus doesn't want his people to have a troubled heart. He doesn't say, oh, your hearts are troubled? Well, that's just what I have for you at this time. He says, I don't want you to have a troubled heart. I want you to have a trusting heart. Because it's so much better. So go there. Don't stay with your troubled heart. And, and yet, it's hard because he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. But from their perspective, could you imagine Jesus, Jesus says, you know what, you guys, I'm going to leave. Uh, I'm your teacher. I'm your, your best friend. I love you and I care about you. And I'm going to leave you. Uh, and not only that, he's told them that, that they're going to deny him. They're going to abandon him. They're going to scatter from him. And then he turns around and he has the audacity to say, but don't be troubled. And in their minds, they have to be thinking, how can you expect us to not be troubled? Do you realize the gravity of the situation? It's like they're asking, this is in my mind what I would be asking Jesus in my head, uh, that you can't actually expect us to not be troubled. And yet he says, don't be troubled. Instead, believe. Believe in God, believe also in me. Most commentators, they agree that this first one, when he says believe in God, he, he means, or he's saying, and so we have a footnote in your Bible there, it says, you have believed in God, so now also believe in me. And that they've trusted the Lord with abandoning their fishing and following Jesus. They've trusted God to follow Jesus for these last three years. They're trusting in God for that. He says, you've trusted God, now also trust in me. Trust in me in the same way that you had trusted in God because, implying, I am God. And so he tells them that the remedy to their troubled heart is Jesus himself. The remedy to the troubled heart is Jesus. And I think of that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, Look Forward His Wonderful Face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and His grace. And it's not a promise that when you look to Christ, your troubles go away. It's that Jesus is greater than your troubles. 
He doesn't tell his disciples, this is how to get rid of your problems. He says, this is how to walk through your problems. By believing in me. And yet, belief in Jesus is always so much easier when we see Jesus as the King of glory. His disciples saw him as the King of glory. They saw him entering Jerusalem. They said, this is, this is why we follow Jesus. This is why we believe. Like, we know Jesus is worthy of all this praise. But it's harder to follow Jesus when he becomes not the King of glory, but the King of the cross. And that as, they, as he goes to the cross, this is not their expectation. This is not what they were, where they were planning on. And it's easy for them to say, Jesus, we will follow you because we know you are worthy of all worship and you're a king. But when they see him beaten and bruised, Peter says, I don't even know him. I don't know who Jesus is. Because Jesus is no longer the king who is exalted, but instead he's the servant who is humbled. And it is so much easier for us to follow Jesus when we are thinking of Christ giving us or exalting us, seating us at his right hand, that we will be glorified one day with Christ. But Jesus says it's not about the place of glory, but it's the place of the cross, that that's where he's going to bring them as they follow him. That's where he himself is going to go. And so, so specifically, he tells them, believe in God and believe also in me. And then he's going to give them specifically, I think, two things that they're supposed to believe about him. Uh, two things that in their believing in him, these particular areas are going to be, in a sense, his answer to their troubled heart. What does he specifically want them to believe? In verse 2, he says, in my father's house, are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And so he starts off by talking about his father's house. This is where he's going to go. He's leaving. He says, I'm going to leave. He's not talking solely about the cross, but I think he's also talking about ultimately returning to the father. That's where he's going. He's going to prepare a place for them there. And, And so he tells them, in his father's house are many dwelling places, If it were not so, I would have told you. Why does he say it that way? Why does he tell them, if it were not so, I would have told you? Because Jesus wants his disciples to understand that I, he says, I didn't come with a mission, and now I'm going to say mission accomplished, now I'm going back to my Father. But he says, from the very beginning, the purpose of my mission wasn't just to get myself back to the Father, but to get get you all with me, with the Father. That in my Father's house is not just one room. It's not just me going back to my place, but it's me going back to a place so that I can bring you there with me. That that's his end goal. That the end goal for Jesus is not to say, job well done, but the goal for Christ is reconciliation. To restore people to God, to their maker. And so he says, I'm returning to the Father for your good. And he says that he's going to prepare a place for them. And, you know, the hardest part of my, typically, the hardest part of my day, uh, the work day, is when I have to go to my girls in the morning and give them hugs and kisses 
and then walk out the door. I don't enjoy that part of my day. Because I know that I, while I'm gone, they're going to make memories. They're going to be learning new things. They're going to be trying new things. And they're going to have so much fun while I'm gone. And I'll hear about it when I get home. I'll talk to them about it. But so much of their life, I'm not going to get to see. I'll just hear about it. And so I don't enjoy leaving in the mornings to go to work. It's not because I don't like work. It's because I love my kids. I love my family. And, and so, yet, we still do it. We still go to work every day. Even though we know that, that we're going to miss our loved ones. Even if it's just a few hours. Why do we still do it? Because we're convinced, not just that we need to, but that it's best. That in going, in leaving for a time, is for the purpose of of providing something better. And if we don't go, then it will be worse for my family than if I do. And so, I think that's the same idea with, with Jesus here, is that he isn't leaving his disciples because he's done with them. He doesn't leave because he's, he's tired of their unbelief. But he loves them, and he cares for them. And because he cares for them, he's going to make a choice that he knows is going to cause their hearts to be troubled. And sometimes when I leave for work, it's really easy. The girls, they don't even say bye. And other times, they're just weeping because I'm leaving. It just depends on their mood. Uh, but, but still, even though I know it can cause them hurt, even though Jesus knows this is going to hurt his disciples, he still does it. That God still works in our lives in ways that, in allowing things that he knows are going to hurt. Because, he says, there's something better. It's worth it. That there is a cost, there is a price, and there is a, the challenge and the troubled heart that's going to come. But he says it's worth it. There's something, there's something that he's moving towards and preparing them for. And so, that's why he goes. That he knows it's best. Uh, he knows it's going to devastate them with his leaving. And I don't think that he necessarily enjoyed, uh, I know he didn't enjoy seeing them distraught or seeing them troubled. But still he goes anyway. He looks on their discouragement, which he is in a sense a source of, and he still leaves them despite the heartache. And he doesn't tell them how to avoid a troubled heart. He tells them how to overcome a troubled heart. And that overcoming is by his leaving and going preparing a place for them. That the overcoming comes by their believing that he is going to be with them forever. And we can spend so much of our time trying to avoid things that may be discomforting or that may lead to our troubled heart that we are unable to actually enjoy Christ's life in the midst of those things uh, and enjoy him in the midst of it so that we're not ruled by a troubled or discouraged spirit. And in verse 3, he goes on, he says, If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And so he tells them that he's leaving for their good. Uh, that the first thing that he says, you know, I said two things, the first thing that he says overcomes a troubled heart is the promise of his presence that the goal is always relationship. 
restored fellowship. And he says, I'm leaving in order that, not so I can just leave and abandon you, but so that one day I can be with you forever. He says, in the face of your discouragement, take comfort in knowing that it's just temporary, that this is but a moment, but a breath, and the day is coming that he will be with us, be with his disciples forever. But he doesn't leave it there because he doesn't tell them, you know, here's your hope for the future. Here's a way to overcome a troubled heart. Here's a way to persevere and endure. Just, just know that it won't be like this forever. Just, just stick it out for now and then eventually I'll come back for you. He doesn't leave them there. He doesn't just say that because hope for one day I don't think is, is sufficient to, to bring us through each day uh, in the face of discouragement. But he's also going to give them the means on the daily basis of how to live even when they're discouraged or troubled. And so that's the second thing. In verse 4 he says, And you know the way where I am going. He says, The other way that you overcome this troubled heart, the, your comfort, is in the fact that you know the way to where I am. So he says, take comfort in knowing I'm going to come back for you. That I'm preparing a place that we can be together forever. And then he says, secondly, take comfort in knowing that you know how to get to where I am. You know the path to take. You can still be with me. Just walk in the way. You know the way. (laughs) But Thomas, he isn't very sure. He says in verse 5, he says, Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And, and I think really here, Thomas, it's not, he's not asking Jesus, where are you going? He's still just upset about the fact that Jesus is leaving. And Thomas is consistently the pessimist among the group. When Jesus is about to go raise Lazarus from the dead, uh, before they go, Thomas says, Jesus, those men in that area where Lazarus is, they, they wanted to kill us. If we go, they're going to they're gonna kill you. And Jesus says, we're going to go. And Thomas says, all right, well, we'll all go die together then. Might as well. Uh, and, and so he hears Jesus, he's like, this is not going to go well. And, and then here, Jesus tells them, he's just giving them this amazing comfort. You're going to be with me forever. Forever. I'm preparing a place for you. And Thomas, he still can't get past the fact that Jesus is just leaving. He doesn't take comfort in Jesus' promise that they're going to be together forever. He's still discouraged about the fact that he's leaving. We don't know how to get to where you are. We want to just be with you, Jesus. And, and even later, Thomas is going to be the one who says, I'm not going to believe that Jesus has risen from the dead unless I actually see him. And I touch his hands and I touch his side. Until that, I don't believe it. And, and so Thomas is never, has, is never one to be quick to jump on whatever Jesus is saying. He's usually more negative. He's, I think, like the opposite of Peter. Peter's all, all in all the time. And Thomas is always holding back. He's not sure. And, and so Thomas says, we actually don't know the way, Jesus. We don't know how to, how to get to where you're going. And this is what Jesus comforts him with, or how he... Responds in verse 6. He says, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth 
and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And it's interesting when Jesus talks about when he's the bread of life in John chapter 6. He's talking to a huge group of people. They just wanted to make him king. And Jesus said, no, you're not going to make me king. And, and then he's talking to them and he, he tells them, the only reason you're seeking me is because I just did the miracle of the 5,000. I give you free food. And people like free food. They follow people who give them free stuff. And Jesus says, that's the only reason why you're following me. But Jesus says, but I know a place where you can get bread that when you eat it, you will never hunger again. And this sounds really good. They're like, okay, always give us this bread. That's what they say, give us this bread. We want that. And then Jesus says the absurd, and he says, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. And it's the same thing he does here, that he tells the disciples, you know the way to get to me. And Thomas says, no, we don't know the way. Show us the way to get to you. And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the path to get to me. And you think, like, logically, that, that makes no sense. How, how does that work? consistently, that you are the bread that gives life, that you are the way to get to where you are. And, and yeah, if we take those literally, they make no sense, but that's why it's, it's a spiritual thing. Of He is the bread of, of life, that we come in faith and dependence. The way that we depend on food to live is the same way that we view Jesus for life spiritually, that apart from him, there is no life, that it's faith, faith in Christ. And and with him saying that he is the way, it's the same idea that it comes across as absurd. Jesus, how are you the way to yourself? No one can walk on you. Like, you're not a literal path. But he says, spiritually, the way that I go, the only way to life is through me, by faith, faith in me, walking with me. And this is, remember, this is his, still his solution, I think, in responding to their troubled hearts. He says, in the place of your trouble and your discouragement, remember, believe in me, in the way that I have taken you, in the way that I am going. So you also go. Follow me. But the way that Jesus goes is, in the world's eyes, the way of foolishness. Because the way of the cross is foolish. The world says that the way of a king is on a throne. He sits on the throne, but Jesus goes and he's nailed to a cross. That doesn't make sense. And Jesus says, but that is the way to life. And he says, you disciples also, you guys have to take up your cross and follow me. If you're unwilling to go the same way that I go, the way of the cross, then you're not going to have life. He says, only by believing in me and following after me will you know the way of life. And so he says that, that he is the way, and he's calling them to follow him in faith and believe. And that Jesus shows them that the path of glory, which is their hope, they're, they're excited about glory, they're excited about sitting at his right hand and his left, and they ask him, Peter asked him one time, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you. And Jesus says, surely you'll be rewarded for that. And, and the, the idea of reward is never never uh, negated. And Jesus doesn't say that you should, you won't have any reward. But the reward and, and the glory is seen as a positive thing, as a motive. But Jesus says the way to, to glory is 
through the cross, not around it. And for his disciples as well, he says, it's not, the goal isn't to avoid the hardship and the trial, but to walk through it with Christ. It doesn't mean we look for it, but in the midst of it, we can walk through it as we walk in faith in the way, Jesus being the way. And so, then he also adds on these other two things, the truth and the life. And this is kind of puzzling to me because Thomas didn't ask about the truth and life. Thomas asked about the way. Initially, Jesus didn't talk about the truth and life. He just talked about the way. He said, I am the way. Or he said, you know the way to where I'm going. And then now, in his response to Thomas, Jesus adds on that also I'm the way, but I'm not just the way, but I'm also the truth and I'm also the life. And how do these things relate to Jesus' conversation with them about trying to comfort them about his leaving, about their being with him? How does him being the truth and the life bring comfort? And so, these are my thoughts. Hopefully they're, they're right. Uh, <clears throat> when Jesus says that he's the truth, that... <clears throat> Remember that the way that he's going, the way that he's going to take them, the the goal is always to bring them to the Father. That they would know the Father. In verse 7, he's going to say, if you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. And so he keeps going back to his relationship with the Father and how his people will relate or see or behold or know the Father. And so when Jesus says he's the way, he's saying he is the only way to the Father. He is the way to get there. And when he says he is the truth, he's saying he is a perfect demonstration of who the Father is. And that's why he says in verse 7 uh, that if, if you'd known me, you would have known my Father. And he says in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That Jesus is the truth in the sense that you know, God made us to live out his image so that the world would see that we would all see Christ, we would see God in each other, a representation of who God is. And that's our purpose, to live like God, to bear his image. And Jesus is the truth of that. He is the epitome of that. He is a perfect representation, Hebrews 1 says, that Jesus is the one who clearly displays who the Father is. He is the truth of the Father. And so not only is he the way to the Father, but he's also the truth of the Father, and it's only in Christ and through Christ and faith in Christ that one can have the life that comes in knowing the Father. The antithesis of life is death. And Adam and Eve, when they sin, death enters the world, but they don't die right away. And so what, in what sense do they die? Well, we say, well, they died spiritually. They're separated from from God. The relationship is broken. Because that's essentially what death is. It's not primarily a lack of breathing, but it's a separation of the body from the soul. That's why the resurrection is a reuniting of the the soul with a, a body that's been made new. And that is the giving of life isn't just the giving of breath, but it's a restoring of things that were separated, bringing them back together. That's what life is. And so the death that Adam and Eve bring into the world when they sin is separation between God and man. 
And Jesus says, I am the way to the Father. I am the truth and representation of the Father. And in me, you have the life, the rejoining of man with his creator. Resurrected life. That's why Jesus says, I am the resurrection. And so when he says that he is the life, I think he's meaning that that this restored fellowship, this restored relationship between God and man, he says, only happens through me. That I am the means and the source of it. And that's his comfort for them. In their troubled state, he tells them, believe in me. Believe in me in these two major things. Believe in me that, that I am going to prepare a place for you so that we will be together forever. They don't want to be separated from him. And he doesn't disregard that. He doesn't play that down. He says, that's a legitimate desire to be with me. And he says, but take hope and comfort in knowing that you will be with me forever. But for a short time, you won't. And he encourages them to believe also that he is today the way of life, the truth of life, and the giver of life. That today they can walk with him in, as they walk in faith. And they can know Christ. They can know the fellowship of Christ, the presence of Christ, even though physically they're not with him now. And so just a few closing, closing thoughts. Recapping that the Lord doesn't bring hardship in order for us to be troubled or discouraged. God's goal, Christ's intention in leaving the disciples is not to discourage them. But instead, he wants us to know his life that overcomes the trouble. That Paul can write and say that the afflictions he faces are momentary and light afflictions. And you look at what the afflictions were when he lists them, and you think there's nothing light about that. That seems pretty extreme to be beaten and left for dead. Like, that's a big deal. And Paul says it's a momentary light affliction. How can he say that? Well, he can say that because in the face of his trouble, he knows that there's something better. There's something better. And his, his belief and his faith and his hope in that which is better makes the affliction, it doesn't take away the trouble, but it makes it seem less extreme. Uh, it's not his focus, but it says focus is Christ. The Lord doesn't look at the things that we're troubled over and simply say, get over it, as we can be prone to do with other people. But instead, he comes alongside his own And he gives them a vision of something that outshines the trouble. That the Lord is a God of comfort. He says, in Christ there is comfort. Believing in him. And so the remedy that God gives to our troubled heart is simply Jesus. Simple, childlike faith in Jesus Christ. Specifically, a promised eternity spent with him and a life daily lived with him and in him. And so I so appreciate how Jesus doesn't give them a complex answer or a step-by-step process of when you are troubled, here's the things that you have to do. But he says, when you are troubled, look to me. Believe. Take hope, take comfort, 
and know the joy of knowing me, of knowing Christ, that he's better. He's better than our trouble. He's greater than it, and he walks us through it. All right, let me close in prayer. Lord, we do just acknowledge that that each day and each week uh, we we are tempted to be troubled and discouraged. The Lord, some here may even be so troubled to the point where they're looking around and saying, "Is it even?" worth it or is this how is this all going to turn out how can there be any hope in this situation and I do pray that if there's anyone here in that place Jesus that that they would behold you in your word and that they would see the glory of Christ as you walk them on the path of the cross that there would be comfort to knowing that there will be an eternity spent with you. And Lord, for many of us, I, I think that it's not necessarily just the, the big things that are happening that trouble our hearts, but the day-to-day grind that the enemy wants to use to distract us and to discourage us. I think that our efforts or the things that we're doing are just, are just worthless or, or futile. And I pray that we would see that there is purpose in you as we walk in Christ who is the way, in Christ who is the truth, in Christ who is the life. And I pray that we would not be discouraged, but be filled with hope, that we would walk in your life humbly and rejoicing in who you are. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.